Broadcasting from deep in the Eublifaris galaxy, on a small planet called Geconia, east of the Albino Hills and south of the raging Lucistic River, comes the one, the only, Gecko Nation Radio. Good evening, everybody. This is your host, Dave, and welcome to another edition of Gecko Nation Radio. I'm very happy to be here with uh, doing the show tonight, and I'm really looking forward to tonight's episode. Uh, we're going to be talking... Well, first, it's uh, September 28, 2014. We're going to be talking with Vin Russo from Cutting Edge Herpeticulture, and um, we're going to hit on a bunch of really cool topics. Number one, we're going to talk about what it's like to run the Long Island Herp Society, which is a really cool organization that Vin is involved with. And um, also, we're going to talk about Saranam, red-tailed boas, some green tree pythons, and other things. I want to make a special announcement also that Gecko Nation Radio has a new partner, and that is Mr. Tim Walton. Not only is he going to be a co-host, but he's also joining the team with Steve and I. And uh, we're going to be taking the show up to the next level soon. So uh, just really exciting things. But uh, let's go ahead and bring Tim on. Tim, you're live on the air. How's it going tonight? Pretty good. How are you, Dave? Good. I I just want to uh, thank you very much for uh, deciding to come on board with the show. And uh, I think you'll be able to bring a lot uh, to Gecko Nation Radio. Thank you. Um, I appreciate being a part of it. And... uh... I look forward to uh, what we can do in the future to uh, inform people about, you know, these wonderful herps that we work with. And uh, I think there's something for everyone to learn from from the show. Absolutely. And um, on a side note, I was thinking we still have some prizes to give away from last week, uh, last week's episode with, um, oh, geez, I forgot his name already. Mike Lehman. That's right, Mike Lehman from the Gourmet Rodent. Uh, Mike was See, that's why that's why us... you brought me on board. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, Mike was gracious enough to give us some. Not only uh, he gave us three T-shirts, three Gourmet Rodent T-shirts, and he gave us what a hundred dollar credit. Yes. Okay, here's what I want to do. Instead of doing crazy, complicated, uh, you know, contests or whatever, for this particular prize, I'm going to do something cool and. Here's what I think. I'm going to give the T-shirts to the first three people that were in the chat room tonight. And I'm going to give the $100 credit to someone who I believe is Gecko Nation Radio's biggest fan. How do you feel about that, Tim? Sounds good. All right. The first three people that were in the chat room tonight were Crystal, Elsa, and Gerard. Okay? So Elsa Borzoi, Gerard Gary, and Crystal Butcher. You are you all three are gonna get a gourmet rodent t shirt. Congratulations. Do me a favor, message me on Facebook with your size, your shirt size, and uh I'll make I'll facilitate Mike uh send me those. Now, there's someone that's very special to the show and she's been with us since the beginning and I don't know. She's just really cool. And we all know she's there every single night. She helps share the show links all the time, which I really appreciate. I keep an eye on who does that for us. And that is Miss Elsa Borzoi. Elsa, you're going to get the $100 credit. 
because I definitely feel you are Gecko Nation Radio's biggest fan. And we have a lot of big fans, but by far, you are there every single time. So congratulations, Elsa. Um, all right, a few other uh, in Gecko Nation Marketplace. Okay, if you're in the Gecko Nation group on Facebook, make sure you hop on over and join our Marketplace, okay? We're going to be doing a special uh, series of raffles, okay? Uh, John Scarborough's involved. I'm going to be getting a lot of, uh, you know, well-known breeders involved in this. And we're going to run a series of auctions to, and the proceeds are all going to go to help Christina's pet, pet sanctuary. And Christina was a guest on the show about a month or two ago, I believe. And she runs a legitimate uh, reptile rescue here in Pennsylvania. I've been there. I've seen it. It's amazing. She runs it from her house. Her house is completely filled with animals, every nook and cranny is uh, filled with something really cool. And she takes in alligators and tortoises, everything. It's just amazing. So I like the idea that, you know, giving back to the community, I think a, a really good way to give back is to do local, uh, local, uh, you know, to help local organizations. And that's what Christina does. So if you guys want to check her out, check out Christina's Pets in the Gecko Nation group. And also, she's on Facebook, and uh, listen to this, listen to our episode. Get a feel for who she is, and uh, I hope you guys will definitely help us with this this uh, series of auctions because I think it could really raise a lot of money for her. And I'd like to do them once a year if we can. All right, so that's that. And also, I just want to remind everybody that there's only a couple days left for uh, the coupon for GiantLeopardGecko.com. Okay, he's giving you 20% off any of his cool geckos. That's Keith Higgins, also a sponsor of the show. The code is GNR2014. Take advantage while you still can, folks. All right? Um, I think that's it. Well, Tim, you know, every week I have to ask you a very, very serious and important question. There's a lot of new people coming into the community, a lot of people that are really interested in leopard geckos especially. We want to educate them. We want to try to inspire some of the casual hobbyists to take it to the next level and become part of the elite gecko owners, uh, best way to give them a jump start on the knowledge. Where do we, where do we want to send them for that knowledge? We would like everybody to go to, go to geckoforums.net. Congratulations, Tim. You won, but uh, I don't have a prize for you. So I'm going <laughs> to give you this. Check it out, folks. Did you know that since 2006, there's been a treasure trove of history and information on leopard geckos and other species? Well, Gecko Forums is the most extensive database of leopard gecko history on the web right now. Take a look and delve into the past, present, and future of this great community. The biggest contributors, breeders, and hobbyists have left their mark there. Now it's your turn. Look, learn, and post away. Need a place to post animals for sale? Look no further visit geckoforums.net and become a member today. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to be the official radio show associated with Gecko Forums. Herpentime Radio is my inspiration for GNR. Justin and JD do a terrific show every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern and have an amazing archive of shows available for download. Visit them at blogtalkradio.com slash herpentime and on Facebook. That's right, folks. Um, and also keep in mind that 
Gecko Nation Radio has been going strong, I believe, for almost a year now. Okay, we started in uh, the end of September, early October. We've seen just a lot of great guests on the show. We've done so much in this in this first year. Um, I'm going to find out exactly when our year is. Maybe we'll do some kind of celebration. But one of the things we take very seriously here at Gecko Nation Radio is our sponsors, okay? Um, our sponsors definitely pay to have their advertisement here on the show, but we screen our sponsors and we take pride in the fact that our sponsor plugs are sincere. These people really are the best at what they do, the best in the business that they're in, and some of the best breeders that you can do business with. So rest assured that if you're going to be buying any snakes, lizards, geckos, or whatever from any of our sponsors, you're not going to get ripped off. You're not going to get scammed. You're going to get the best of what there is, that the best of what they are, you know, in their particular niche. So that's something that we that I put stake my reputation on, folks. All right. So check out our sponsors. Definitely uh, patronize them because they're out here supporting the show, supporting the community, and always doing great things for us. Check them out. We're going to play some of them now and some of them at the half half hour mark or at the half show break. All right. Check them out. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by Reptiles Express is the absolute best live animal shipping company with great low rates. Debbie is the queen of customer service and will make sure your precious cargo gets to where it needs to. They also have a wide array of shipping supplies from deli cups, snake bags, heat packs, and more. Visit reptilesexpress.com and become a member today. Longhorn Geckos is a father and son collaboration. Daryl and Kate Burton specialize in the best supertangelos, pastel raptors, white and yellows, and really nice wild types. Follow them on Facebook at Longhorn Geckos and on their new website coming soon. Ohio Gecko is famous for amazing tangerines, snows, and other very unique leopard gecko projects. Thad also has some incredible fat tail morphs available from stingers to starbursts. Visit him online at ohiogecko.com and at expos in the northeast. He is also the owner of geckoforums.net. Dale's Bearded Dragons is your one-stop source for any reptile supply products that you may need from Exoterra, Zoomed, Rapashi, Repcal, Fluker, and much, much more, and all at 20 to 50% cheaper than your local pet store or big chain pet store. They are also the biggest reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. Contact them directly online at dalesbeardeddragons.com or message me on Facebook and I'll put you in touch with the owner. And if you're looking for quality food for your dubia roaches, crickets, mealworms, and superworms, Look no further than MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Made with reptiles in mind, it contains no dog food, cat food, or chicken mash. Using only vegetable proteins and high-quality ingredients, MS2 Premium Insect Chow will have your feeders making a beeline for it. Contact ms2ent.weebly.com or it can also be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms and AB Dragons. All right, folks, we are back, and uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into the news. 
with Mr. Steve Parker. Good evening, Gekonians. <laughs> What's up, Steve? How are you, bud? Pretty good. How are you? Doing good. I really like that video that you made with the dancing milli That was phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I had <laughs> fun making it. <laughs> Yeah, it came out really good. It may even go viral. Let's see. Let's see what happens. I'd like to see yeah. that. Cool. So, uh, right, and I just want to make everybody aware that Steve and I are going to be uploading our shows and uh, to the Gecko Nation Radio YouTube channel, okay? So if you guys have trouble with blog talk, which can be confusing a little bit sometimes, or if you just are on YouTube all the time, you'll be able to listen to the shows there as well. So, all right, Steve, go ahead. Take it away, bud. All right, our first story is kind of a little crazy one. In North Platte, Nebraska, a man calling 911 said, There's a snake in my truck. The man was unable to determine what type of snake was in his Ford F-250 during the call, but he was sure it was a snake. He thought the snake was eating a raccoon. (laughs) However, when troopers searched the pickup, they didn't find a snake. What they did find was heroin, a drug that can cause hallucinations, according to the (laughs) National Institute of Health. Oh, my God. (laughs) So it is suspected that the man was under the influence of that drug at the time of the call. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, it is. So sticking Jeez. with uh with uh vehicles and snakes, in Maine, police say two women opened the trunk of their rental car to retrieve their luggage and were greeted by a ball python. The woman the women drove the rental car from Boston to Maine where they discovered the ball python Wednesday night and called police. The snake was turned over to the, to the main warden service and is being transported to the Center for Wildlife in York. And after the snake was removed, the women wanted a new rental car, <laughs> even though they knew <laughs> the snake had been removed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess, uh, well, you never know. Maybe they could have, they probably think maybe it had babies or something in there. I don't know. They're probably, uh, <laughs> just yeah, they're there. just probably terrified. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I'd be looking for more. Yeah, really? I'd, I'd welcome Jeez. them. <laughs> I know. All right. In our last story, in also in Maine, woman finds two headed baby snapping turtle crossing the street. She was oh, wow. observing yeah, she was observing turtles that were hatching and was helping them to make sure they made it across the street. And one of the turtles had fallen behind and appeared to her to have two extra feet. When she brought it home and cleaned it off, she realized that it had two heads instead. Probably so falling behind because cool. it was trying to go 
two different directions on the road, maybe. <laughs> yeah, really. So <laughs> it sounds like she's kept the turtle and named it Frank and Stein. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Cool. That's pretty wow, cool. They're going to offer her a lot of money for that. Probably. Yeah. And it's uh, almost nice. in time for Halloween, so that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's, that's cool. Somebody, yeah, anybody that, listening that has a bunch of money, you better get on that and offer her some money for that. It may be a genetic trait. Maybe something cool to work with in the future. Who knows? Yeah, really. And that hmm. that was our last story. All right, cool. Well, I think uh, Steve... What do you think? Should we fire up the flux capacitor and go back in time? Absolutely. All right. <laughs> All right. Sticking <laughs> with the two-headed turtle, on August 10th, 1984, a two-headed baby sea turtle was discovered on Hutchinson Island in Florida, it was a loggerhead turtle, and that one was okay. kept in, also kept as a pet. I don't know if a it survived. Head. Yeah, August tenth, nineteen eighty four. Well, hold on a second. It can be a loggerhead sea turtle, or is it a loggerhead loggerhead turtle? Maybe loggerhead sea turtle. Oh wow! Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Is it still alive, or I don't know? Uh, Maybe. I couldn't. I couldn't find anything saying it was still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a picture in the article of it. It's not a great picture, you know, from 1984 newspaper article, but it looks mm-hmm. pretty cool. <laughs> nice. Yeah. All right. Cool. What's going on in your collection, Steve? Uh, not a whole lot. Um, other than just. Feeding and growing everybody up right now. Getting getting mm. geared up geared up for the the upcoming ball python season. Again. Yeah. Right, right. So they're gonna start ovulating soon, right? Uh well I'll start dropping their temperatures. By the end of this month I'll start dropping their temperatures down and then you know, and then that will you know, instigate them to to start ovulating and everything. That'll get them okay. into it, in the mood, I guess you would say. <laughs> right. Do you want me to send you out my uh, fire? Uh, yeah. Yeah, ac- actually, yeah, that'd be cool. All right, this way you can cool them down the right way and everything, because, you know, I don't really, I don't know how to do that yet, so. All right, cool. Yeah. All right, we'll make a I'd, I'd appreciate the week, it. Now. Yeah, definitely, that'd be cool. He's, I mean, he's one of a kind, so maybe you can make something cool with him. What would you pair them Definitely. to? I might put them to uh, either... I, I have a a blonde lesser that's coming up to size, so I may hook them up with, with that blonde lesser so we could oh, nice. get uh, fire blonde lessers, which would probably be real cool. Wow, yeah, that would be cool. What about those um, those thinkers that you have? Any, are they getting up to size yet or what? Uh, they went off feed on me. They were getting, they're they're sitting at probably 1,100 grams roughly, and they stopped mm-hmm. eating on me. So, so probably not this year. 
<laughs> I thought yeah. they would be. <laughs> I hate that thing. I hate that fact about ball pythons where they just stop eating sometimes. Yeah. So aggravating. Oh, I know, and they can, they, yeah, I've had them go eight months before, you know, different snakes I've had go, go eight months without eating. That's crazy. And, and put on weight. <laughs> from water? From water alone, I guess? I guess. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how they do it. That's weird. Yeah, it is. All right, well, cool. Thanks again for everything, uh, Steve, and uh, how, do you, how do you feel about our new partner, Tim? Oh, I, I think it's great. Yeah, that's what I told Tim. I said, yep, Steve welcomes you, too. You're part of the clan now. Absolutely. So. Yeah, thanks awesome. for having me, Steve. It's uh, it's great, the work you've been doing with the videos and the news and uh, and the history you've been bringing to the show. Thank you. Cool. All right, Steve, we will see you next week, and thank you again for an awesome news segment. I'll see you there. All right. All right, Tim, what do you say? You want to introduce our guest? Yes, tonight we have Vin Russo of Cutting Edge Herpetological. He is an accomplished breeder and author and uh, has many years of experience in the industry. Um, he is a professional breeder. Uh, he He's probably best known for his locality and morph boa constrictors, but he also is a very experienced breeder of many other reptiles. And on top of that, he also serves as the president of the Long Island Herp Society and does a lot of work with them and educational programs to, uh, you know, get the word out about how cool our, our hobby is and and invite people to see the reptiles that we work with in a very laid-back atmosphere and see that they're not to be feared or frightened of, that they're mostly just harmless animals and they make great pets so uh go ahead and bring them on dave all right vin russo you are live on gecko nation radio thanks for having me guys it's great to have you on vin thank you uh thank you for doing the show um if anybody's interested uh while we're talking to uh check out vin's uh, website it's cuttingedgeherp.com and he's also on facebook uh as cutting edge herp yeah, Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash cutting edge herp. So uh, how's everything going, Vin? Pretty good. Pretty good. It's uh, a busy time of year with baby snakes being born and having to maintain all the baby snakes and feed them and take care of them. So it's a busy time of year. As well as getting the, the breeders fed and getting them ready to start breeding again, right? Exactly. Everybody's uh, on full-blown feed mode at this time, so feeding season is in full swing, and so I'm doing a, a lot of uh, of both right now, maintaining the adults, feeding them, you know, religiously, and uh, also maintaining all the new hatchlings. So, a lot of work. Vin, why don't you start out by uh, letting everybody know how you got into herpetoculture and how you ended up becoming a professional her breeder well i I got into reptiles the the same way as most most people out there um as a kid, I was into dinosaurs and 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 stuff like that so and when I was really young uh, I was fortunate enough to grow up uh in suburban New York, where my parents sent me away to camp every summer and 
I would catch snakes and frogs and and salamanders and, and I was really into fishing so I'd go fishing and you know catch crayfish and sunfish and so it all started pretty young and um I started breeding reptiles as a kid probably probably saw my first breeding of snakes when I was probably about 12 or 13 and um saw my first litter of boas when I was about 15 I think or 16 so um 45 now so that's over 30 years of of breeding snakes um and uh was became a um a mortgage banker for about 15 years and when the mortgage uh, market started collapsing which in the mortgage world was about 2000 the year 2000 um I had always been breeding reptiles and started my company in 95 but was just doing it for fun out of my house and by 2000 when the mortgage market was collapsing I said, you know, what the heck, I'll uh, I'll do this full-time, and if I put as much money, well, I should say put as much time and energy into the reptiles, I should be able to make a living out of it, and thank God, luckily I did, so that's what I do now. And why don't you tell us uh, some of the species that you currently work with? Well, I do mostly locali- locality boas. Um, that's my forte. That's uh, The boas are something I've always been into, my, my brother and I. Um, helped describe boa constrictor long back in 1989 with a herpetologist named Dr. Robert Price, um, along with a taxonomist. Um, we did that. Uh, when we did that, I really got into localities of boas and was curious as to what these snakes looked like in different places. So that's that's my that's the majority of my work. And obviously, I've been doing ball pythons for at least 25 years. I've got some snakes that I've had for 25 years. Um, I do a lot of chondro pythons, as you know, and I'm also into um, some of the other tree snakes, annulated boas, um, Amazon Basin tree boas. I also do a lot of corn snakes, um, some some king snakes. I do some children's pythons, which I really like, and I'm really into blue tongue skinks. I've got a, I've got a bunch of them. And the hognose. Did you mention the hognose? Oh, yeah. And I do a bunch of hognose, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a bunch of other things. I have blood pythons. You name it. I'm, you know, I'm, 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 still a, I'm still a hobbyist. Even though this is a commercial business for me, I still do things that I like to do. I don't just do things that are, that are, are you know, popular right now and I'm doing them because uh, people want to buy them. I do the things that I like and... Luckily, people also like the things I like too. So, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the book you've written? Well, back in I guess it was about 2004, I had um, come up with the idea of wow, you know, I really should write a book on boas. There really is not a, a comprehensive guide of, of boas on the market right now. Back then, TFH, Tropical Fish Hobbyist um, Publishers, had a book called Boas and Pythons. They also had a book, Boas of the World, and they were horrible. They were written by a guy who, <laughs> who was just writing. He wrote also Know Your Hamster and Know Your your Guppy. So the same author was writing all their books. So I'm saying to myself, there's got to be a better way. I mean, not to knock TFH. I'm sure that if they hear this, they'll be like, you know, who's this guy think he is? 
But I, I think, it, you know what, I can put all my knowledge, compile all my knowledge together, all the years that I've been doing it, and come up with a book. So I sent my book proposal in writing to a bunch of publishers, and every single one of them came back to me, and they were all pet publishers. They all came back to me with the same response. We already have a book on boa constrictors, thanks for wasting our time. So um, luckily, um, my friend Greg Maxwell um, wrote The Complete Chondro back in, he was, I think, about the same time, 2004, 2005. And um, I talked to him about his book, and um, he said, you know, you really should talk to Bob Ashley about um, writing a book. And, um, and I went to Bob Ashley. I gave him my book proposal, and um, I told him what it was about. And the title of the book that I originally wrote was called um, The Captive and Natural History of Boa Constrictors. So I went and had dinner with Bob one uh, one night when I was in Dayton- Daytona one year, and discussed the book with him. He said, Vin, I definitely want to do the book, but I only asked one thing, that you change the title to The Complete Boa Constrictor to be book number two or three. I think the Ball Python book was just about out at that point. So book three in the, in the series. So what was, what was I going to say? No, I want to keep the title. So I said, sure, let's change the title. <laughs> Complete Boa, let's do it. So um, we did it. And at that point he said um, he wanted the, the whole thing done within – a certain amount of time, so I had a lot of it done. I had a lot of the compi- the pictures were compiled together already, and um, I did it. So by 2006, it was printed and published and done, and um, the rest is history. Hey, and, and uh, um, speaking of, um, can we just get a, ask a quick question? Uh, speaking of the boas, uh, what do you think? Uh, you know, we we see subtle diversity. This is what fascinates me about boas. Um, we see subtle diversity in all the different locales, but they generally have a, the same appearance. You know, they they look like boas. What is it that makes these little subtle color changes and uh, changes in size and appearance between the different zones where they live? It's all evolution. It's all the it's all the fact that these animals evolved in separate little micro climates and they've all evolved in 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 a certain geographic area with a certain type of soil or um background color that was more advantageous than than others so each snake evolved to become its own unique um subspecies and some species now I'm also working mm-hmm. with a herpetologist recently that was looking for shed skins of snakes with very particular um provenance to particular places so this this woman um, was doing mitochondrial DNA research on on snakes. So I gave her shed skins from all of the locality specific boas that I have from um, islands off of Belize, from mainland Belize, from Mexico, from um, Sonora Desert, and from Central America. And she found some really interesting um, information through her DNA research. She found that. Um, for example, the Craw Key Boa, which is an island off of Belize, is 3% different from the mainland Belize boas. Now, humans share, humans are less than 2% different as far as mitochondrial DNA from chimpanzees. So right. these boas from these islands are as much as 3% different from their from the mainland ancestors. So they you're right they they do look similar but there's a lot of underlying differences that a lot of people don't understand and they don't get cuz i see tons of people 
online doing all these crisscrossing crosses of boas and you know they think it's the coolest thing but to me it's a waste of time when when mother nature and evolution took thousands hundreds of thousands of years to get to one point and now you just ruin it by crossing them with something else so i i can appreciate that philosophy with breeding and you know i do i do see some you know hybrids and some crosses that look cool but yeah i in in the case with these boas i think keeping them pure is definitely the way to go these you know what, you just mentioned how less than 2% difference between humans and chimpanzees. And, you know, when we look at a chimpanzee and what we know about them, they are very, very different. Now, and you also mentioned about the 3% difference between just a boa constrictor a short distance away from another. Now, right. What are those different, what are those actual differences that, that would account for that? Like what what's going on that's different? Because I know they look somewhat similar, but, uh, yeah, how it's in there. It's in their DNA. You know, it's that yeah, simple. Does it express it's in their itself, DNA. though? Like in a, does yeah, it express, it does itself, express in... itself? Yeah, for sure. Because, okay. um, for example, um, you know, crawl key boas have almost like um, keeled scales in a way. It's very, their scales are 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 they're a little different. Not very different. A little different from mainland snakes. The color obviously is different. Their heads are longer. They've evolved a longer head. Um, probably because, well, Doctor, uh, another PhD, Dr. Scott Boback, um, did a whole paper on the fact that their heads evolved to be longer and leaner because they never ate very large meals, so they didn't use certain muscles to stretch their heads out to be these big, wild bulldog heads like you see on mainland snakes. They have these long, thin uh-huh. heads because they've evolved eating lizards and birds. So... And in time, their teeth probably did get a little longer to hold on to these birds, which I've I've noticed their teeth are pretty long because they when they get you, you feel it. Um, so there's again, there's subtle differences. If somebody came from another planet and came to came to to Earth and saw a chimp with a human, they'd think they were they were similar in a way because they're both bipeds and they both you know walk upright at, at certain points and they'd think they were the same because they never saw them before. But then once you start delving, well, I agree with that. You know, you really start delving into the differences of boas. They they are there. They're subtle, but they're there. Then I, I had to I had to look it up. It was it was John Coburn that uh, that had the monopoly on TFH's uh, oh, yeah? animal. Book. I didn't want to mention his name. <laughs> I don't mind mentioning it. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't. I, I didn't mention his name. You did. <laughs> let me uh, let me say something to their defense, just to play devil's advocate. When I was a kid, okay, I and I probably still have all these THF books. You know, oh, I, I, the, I trust the, me. I have a whole library of. I have. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> I I read every single one of them cover to cover several times. I mean, yeah. I mean, I was so thankful to have them, but. Yeah, we've we've evolved since then with our information, thank God. There's also another guy called uh, Jerry Walls who wrote The Living Boas, who also wrote the book on skinks, the book on canaries. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's the same guy. How that, can he be a pro? What about that video, uh, Snakes Alive? Remember that one? Snakes Alive. Yeah, I forget the guy's name. It's, uh, it's some goofy guy and. He was showing he was showing off all different types of snakes uh, from a hobbyist perspective. Um, was it the oh, guy who I sat in the room with like a hundred different venomous snakes? Was it that guy? Or? No, no, he was showing individual 
like different types. And in fact, we had a few morphs back then. We had the uh, albino snoring gopher, gopher, leucistic Texas rat, stuff like that. I think his name was Ron right. Henricks. Is that his name? I'm not Doesn't sure. ring a bell. No. All right. I watched that video a thousand times, but I thought you guys would see it. <laughs> Ron Cromer? Does that sound right? Dave? No, no, I'll look it up. Give me a second. I'm I'm from the era of uh Marlon Perkins, uh you know, watching uh watching Marlon Perkins on on um Musil of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. So I'm I'm from yeah. that. <laughs> then uh let's get back to the locality boas. The uh herpetologist that you mentioned, did she uh also do any mitochondrial work with the Taravumara boas? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The, that was that was a, another unique finding. The Tarahumara boas are as much as five percent different from surrounding Mexican boas. So that that to me is just tremendous. I mean, these snakes evolved in riparian canyons somewhere in the Sonoran Desert, and um, they they were gene- not not only were they genetically isolated like a, a snake on an island, they were genetically isolated due to climate. Um, they were genet- they're genetically isolated from everything around them because they're in these canyons that are just un- they can't get to them. So these snakes evolved probably from just a few animals that got there a very long time ago, and and evolved into these unique creatures. And they are very unique. I don't care what anybody says because people will say to me, "Oh, how can you tell the difference between a Tarahumara boa and a regular Sonora boa?" Huge difference. They're, morphologically, they're different. They're shaped differently. They look different. Their colors are different. They act different. They're just different snakes. And again, the DNA doesn't lie. The DNA is is there. They are different. And um, I don't know whether or not um, any herpetologist out there would 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 come up with the time and energy to do it. But I have a suspicion that a lot of these snakes, especially these locality snakes from these very very um, unique and genetically isolated places, I got a feeling that there will be new descriptions done as far as not only species, but probably even different, um, well, not not only just subspecies, there may be new species, maybe even new genuses if they're, if they're that far different. So we'll see. Why don't you talk a little bit more about uh, the Taravumaras, where they live, the right. Riparian is that? Is yeah, that Riparian how you said it? Canyon. Riparian Canyon. Why don't you describe what that means for our listeners? Um, well, they're just um, they they are like I would call them sky islands Plat- in a way. Plateaus. Um, yeah, sky sky islands. Uh, they 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 have a unique uh, climate. Um, the altitude's a little higher. Um, they have a lot. They they're almost temperate climates there. The 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 trees look like temperate climate pine trees, and um, it does get cool there, but not as cold. I mean, it doesn't get cold like it does up here. Um, it 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 could get into the 50s, I would say, maybe maybe 40s, but it's a it, it's a desert. So at night it does get cool, but these snakes, um, for sure, will hide out in rock crevices and go below ground like rattlesnakes, and and just just keep their their heat overnight and then the next day they'll go basking again so um very 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 unique uh, place if you ever saw pictures of it you'd you'd think it was the most desolate place in the world but there are snakes there and there are other other reptiles there too so and are these islands actually completely isolated in terms of gene flow like there are no they're so they're 
sides are so steep that no boas go up and down, or well, there it, is some it, gene flow? Both. It's, it's canyons and valleys and, and then higher altitudes, so they're right in right in the mix there. So the way I'm thinking is, and I don't know this for sure, but it's just an educated guess that other, other boas, you know, didn't bother going to that, those certain places. Maybe just a, a small handful of snakes went to these places, or maybe at one time, you know, most of Central America was underwater um, 12,000 years ago. So maybe these snakes evolved from just a few specimens that either rafted to a to what was an island or a higher point, and then as waters water receded and ocean levels lowered, and and Central American and Central America was more exposed, they they became isolated in places that other boas didn't get to. Who knows? We don't know because it happened over twelve thousand years ago. So, um, and who knows what ancestors they evolved from in the before that point. I mean, obviously, all boas evolved in in South America, because again, South America and Central America weren't you know, Central America didn't exist, so South America and North America weren't connected. So, as soon as those ocean levels got lowered to the point where Central America was exposed always started heading further north. Um, and another interesting thing is, you know, they, all of this debate about boas uh, are an invasive, could be an invasive species in the United States and how the, the U.S. government wants to put them on the Lacey Act as, um, you know, along with the Burmese python. You know, th- there's there's so much scientific proof that they couldn't live here. Number one is Evolution prohibited them from living here. They, their their range is just a hundred miles shy of our border. So if they wanted to come here, they would have been here. But it's simply too cold. So they evolved from animals from South America, which is which is proved proved by fossil records. <clears throat> they traveled north through Central America, and some of them ended up in these canyons, in these sky islands, in these cloud forests evolved into totally different animals but they were they were restricted by weather to go any further so that's it they stopped and the animals that that stopped at the very end of their journey which are these tarahumara boas are very different you know, and, and talk that, that about is talk about some of those differences yeah the differences well i i said them before they're 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 a Stockier, shorter, stockier snake. A flatter head. Um, they're just a little different. And would you say they're they're the smallest of the locality boas? No. Yeah. Dave, did we lose him? Uh, yeah, we lost him. He'll call back in. Um, yeah, I want to ask him about. I was going to ask him about the Serenams in particular. Those. Those are my favorite. Yeah, just give us a second, folks. So I'm sure uh, Ben will call um, back in. I I really like the Tarahumaras. They're um they're not more, one of the more colorful ones, but uh, I think it's very interesting um, that they're a boa constrictor and they're just in a tiny package. You know, they're basically the size of a corn snake, and um, maybe oh, the females okay. get just a little bit bigger than a corn snake. And uh, but yet really? they're still a boa constrictor. I, you know, I'm not familiar with them. Do, do they look like serenams? Are they colorful? No, they're not. They're not as colorful. They're they're more of a 
of a slate gray, and and some of them are almost black. Um, but okay. uh, you know, they, they have. I'm back. Okay, Vince. You're right. Sorry, I did guess you, uh, you... yeah, he dropped off somehow. Sorry, my fell off a battery right on my Canyon. phone. The battery on the phone died. <laughs> <laughs> I'm That's here. my new favorite. I go to run That's... and get the other phone, and I click, it's it's gone. <laughs> That's my new favorite word, okay. Vince. So yeah, the differences are that um, you know obviously I've got pictures of them on my website. They are a different snake. They're shorter, shorter, stockier. Um, they've got a real new, unique look to them, a, a unique color compared to the most snakes around them. So and again, it's all in the DNA. I, I I can't pinpoint that many differences other than the the head shape, the head spear, the flattened out head, the shorter, stockier body. They remind me almost like ball pythons and blood pythons. They're shorter and stockier snakes, especially boas, than, say, your mainland Central American snakes. The males are really long and lean. These snakes aren't. They're shorter, stubbier, and they're small. I mean, they'll breed in a 28-quart Rubbermaid. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm particular particularly fond of uh, Saranams, uh, and, and uh, I'm actually in the market for uh, a 1.1 or a 1.2. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about them and maybe some some of the aspects of <clears throat> where, where they're located and also uh, some breeding aspects of Saranams, if you could. Yeah, I breed Saranams. I have a few different localities of Saranams, too. Saranams is a pretty big country, so... Um, um, I've got one bloodline that I got um, that came into the country back in the mid '90s. They're like a, they've got like chocolate saddles and you know really maroon tails and sharp, sharp widow's peaks that are connected. Some of them line up almost striped. Um, I've got another bloodline um, called Pokey Grand Surinams. Those animals came in in the country back in like 2004, I guess, um, mm-hmm. into Florida. Um, my friend Gus Renfro started breeding those, so I have a bunch of those. Um, th- those I have some now, some babies available now, and those are probably the top, top seller of Surinam boas. They, they just epitomize what a Surinam boa is. They've got that that chocolatey brown background color that's got a little bit of hues of yellow in it. The saddles are like a very dark chocolatey brown. Um, they're squared off saddles. They do have they do have the classic widow's peak saddles, but some of them are a little more squared off. Um, they have, have magnificent tails. I mean, really, really red tails. As babies, they don't look like much, but after about two years, these snakes are really, really nice. So, those I have a pretty good demand um, of, and I sell those pretty well. And my and my other bloodlines of surnames sell good too. They, they just they all are unique, and they all came from different places. Um, mm-hmm. Hokey Gran are the only ones that I know specifically where they came from. The other ones just came into the country from Suriname with CITES from Suriname. Because um, Suriname is still open to, to shipping CITES animals. So they do come in once in a while, but only only a few at a time, very small numbers. So whenever I do, whenever I can get snakes with provenance to Suriname, I buy them, um, especially wild-caught wild ones. And those I'll quarantine for a year, set them up, and get them to breed, and those babies are what I raise up for for my long-term projects. So th- that's something that's near and dear to my heart. All constricted, constricted snakes. Um, Suriname, I have Brazil. I have, um, obviously, Peru. I have Pacalpa Peru and Iquitos Perus. I just had a litter of Pacalpa Peru boas. 
those are magnificent snakes. Those came into the country via a um, missionary back in the 80s. Um, he used to bring snakes into the U.S. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, and I think that's about it. Oh, I have some Venezuelan constrictor constrictor, too, but I haven't had too much luck breeding those yet. What do you charge for the baby Surinams? <clears throat> the Surinams are, um, well, they vary. It depends on if you if you want to get, like, you know, top-notch um, animals from, like, the Pokegron lineage. They're, they average about 350 a piece. So they're up there, they're, they're, but you know they they don't last. Luckily, I mean people do buy them and they do sell out every year. So you know the way I look at it is I'm I'm getting seven hundred a pair, seven to eight hundred a pair on those Pokegrons. And I've had some people say, "Wow, that's a lot of money, Vin. What are you nuts?" And I've had other people say, "Wow, that's pretty cheap considering some of these morphs are a thousand bucks, two thousand bucks, three thousand bucks a piece." Meanwhile. How many Surinam boas are out there? How many Surinam litters were born this year? I mean, I literally can count on one hand how many I've had. I don't know too many other guys doing Surinam boas. There's very few of them out there. Even the Pacalpa Peru boas, uh, I spoke to a bunch of guys that breed boas, especially Peru boas, and nobody had Pacalpa Peru boas born this year, nobody. So I could be wrong in saying I'm the only one, but I have a feeling I might be. I know there's been a few Akitos Peru boa litters this year, but other than that, um, the, to me, the, the Surinam boas and the, all these constricted, constricted true red tails are the epitome of a boa. I mean, they blow away all of these yep. color morph things, to me. That's just my opinion. Absolutely. I don't want anybody no, coming no, I, down on me. I'm not knocking these no, other I things. Agree. I I own all these other things. I have albino boas. I have sunglow boas. I have leopard boas. I have everything. I have blood boas, and I love them too. But mm-hmm. the first boa I saw as a kid was a Surinam boa in the in the Staten Island Zoo. That was like a pretty big, eight-foot, beautiful widow's peak snake with a huge red tail. And I was just like, what is that? That is amazing. Same here. Same here. Exactly. I, I'm 38 now, and I've been dreaming about owning Surinams since I'm a teenager and you know with all this I never pursued it because I've I've just I don't know I've just been into other things but you know with all this talk about possible you know them getting added to the Lacey Axis and that I'm like well if I'm going to get them I really should get them and you know it's it's always been a dream of mine to get and if I'm going to do it I'm going to get the, the best ones there are that's just how I do things and I could totally appreciate the, uh, the pricing on them, and I, I don't think that's very expensive for for what you're breeding then at all. And I think anybody that would would uh, think that's too much just doesn't really understand all that you know all that there is to right. it. So yeah, a lot of people so, yeah. just see a really cool boa and they they inquire about it to me because um, I, I'm on the web and they probably Google mm-hmm. Cernan boa and they see it and they think oh oh I saw a Cernan boa at a reptile show it was 150 bucks or 200 bucks and they Google, you know they ask me <laughs> and the price is double. And I say to them, it's you know, it's like buying a puppy at a puppy mill or going to a breeder who breeds for you know that particular breed. There's a huge difference. You know what? And you know, people that are at that until they until they uh, get to the to the next stage, they're not going to even by explaining that to them, they don't get it yet. And that's, right. that's all right because they you know they have to evolve their thinking as well. I mean, I was when I was younger, I was that way too, and. You know, we get a lot of that with leopard geckos. People see a gecko on Craigslist, and they're like, "Well, I saw it for twenty bucks on Craigslist. Why are you selling it for one hundred and fifty? You know, right? I, right. I honestly, I don't even answer those questions anymore because it's 
I don't know, it doesn't go anywhere. And you know what I mean? So I kind of, I think our, our customers that are looking for finer animals are already those that have gotten to that point, you know, as far as, you know, their education right. about what they want. Yeah. But, uh, they can go to a yeah. show and buy a, a, a wild-caught Guyana boa for 150 bucks. You know, mm-hmm. and I tell them, well, that's all well and good, but that snake will probably be puking within a month, and it's going to be dead. So exactly. you know, just, buy the, just spend another 150 bucks and and buy a captive-bred and born animal. All the bugs have been worked out. All the hard work has been done. I I got the wild-caught clunkers in 10 years ago. I cleaned them up. I got them to breed and started a breeding colony with the with their offspring. You know, and that's it. I did all the mm-hmm. hard work. And I think I deserve to get get what they're worth, you know. Well, I, and I think every breeder has the right to sell their animals for whatever they feel they're worth. And you know, to actually say that there's a market—I mean, I guess there is market pricing for some animals. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're specializing in something, if you're a specialized breeder, you know, you're—and if you're doing something, if you're doing work that really is extraordinary. Not only will you get the recognition for it, people will definitely notice you, and you know everybody knows who you are, Vin, because of the work you do, obviously. But uh, you know you'll be able to command uh, certain prices for your animals. And then I tell people that are coming into this, I said, you know, there's two types of hobbyists out there. There's the casual hobbyist, and then there's the elite hobbyist that wants to work with the finest bloodlines. And you know, I want to wake up the people that are new hobbyists that are going to go on to becoming the elite types. Because they're out there. They, they just haven't, some of them just haven't, you know, gotten their thinking to that point yet. So that's my whole whole thing is trying to bring in new people and get them, get those certain types to evolve into that thinking as quickly as possible. Because I think that's the quickest route to our goal as in herpetoculture is just not only promoting the hobby and helping it grow, but also establishing uh, a safety net where we have the numbers to beat legislation. So that's just my feeling. It's true. You know, my 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 um, I'm, I'm constantly up against people. You know, ignorant people, obviously. You know, but my my main goal in life is to to prove to the masses that you know captive breeding is the Noah's Ark of the future. And I didn't make up that terminology. Um, Doctor Dick Ross did, and he and he wrote a book called The Reproductive Husbandry of Pythons and Boas. And Dick Ross wrote that book back in 90, and at the end of the book, he states that. He said, you know, captive breeding is the Noah's Ark of the future. Not not only is it the Noah's Ark of the future for, for humans to keep these animals in captivity as pets, but it's also the Noah's Ark of the future for the animals in the wild because there's no real need to take anything out of the wild any longer. And I think one of the, the things we're up against, especially in legislation, is a lot of times I hear politicians say oh they these and they they import these animals from other countries and bring them into this country and now they're invasive species well we don't have to bring anything into the country anymore we're at the point where everything is here like i in my lifetime i don't think i'm going to see any more pacopa perubo has come out of the wild i really don't i don't think i'm going to see another bunch of them come into the country and we'll have you know a hundred to choose from from the wild that's not going to happen 
So I've created my own veritable Noah's Ark of, of some of these animals because I don't think they're going to come in again. Now, is, is it is it prophetic word? I, don't, I hope not, but I think that's going to happen. Same with other other localities of boas. There's not a lot of Suriname boas coming to the country every year. I've, I've never, I haven't seen Ecuadorian boas coming to the country. So we need to prove that we're breeding these animals in captivity, and we have, uh, if if enough people, like you said, get educated to the point where they become good breeders and they can maintain these things, then for the future we'll have them and then they'll have a value, and they'll have a, a want. It's just like people who breed specific dog breeds. You know, the Sharpei dog came in, came came here from China, what, in the 60s or 70s, and there was like a handful of people who had them. Now you can go find a Sharpei puppy from a breeder, and they're, they're out there because a few people were very interested in keeping and maintaining that breed. And it's no different with any other breed of dog, and it should be no different with any other breed of snake. That's the way I look at it. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, uh, well, I mean, I guess time will tell. And uh, I think it's our, all of our responsibility. If we're, if you're at the point where you're a serious breeder, uh, it's all of our responsibility to do what we can to inspire others to get to that point. So, Right. Um, yeah. I do it every yeah. day. That's all I do. Try to explain right, to people. Right, right. I think uh, in the next hour we should talk a little bit about the Herb Society. Um, we're about to take a quick break, folks, uh, so hang with us. Uh, we're going to play the sp- uh, second sponsor plug. And uh, please, folks, uh, understand our sponsor plugs are sincere. These really are uh, the best people in the business and what their business is. Uh, so check them out. We'll be right back. Gecko Nation Radio is a David Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by Gecko Boa Reptiles is your source for the highest quality leopard gecko morphs and wild types, from white and yellows to radars, amazing tremper morphs, and rare subspecies. John is a world-class breeder and extremely knowledgeable. If you're looking for something truly special in geckos, contact John Scarborough at geckoboa.com and on Facebook. Rainbow Mealworms is the largest worm grower in the world and selling to the public since 1956. If you need the highest quality mealworms, superworms, and crickets for your pets, contact them at www.rainbowmealworms.net. Ron Tremper is the biggest contributor to leopard gecko morph making, known worldwide for his amazing examples of living art. You can now download his Leopard Gecko Care app, his Morph Encyclopedia app called Leopard Gecko Pro, and visit his site, leopardgecko.com, to see where morphs are made. GiantLeopardGecko.com specializes in giant and supergiant leopard geckos with a focus on selectively bred exceptional lines of many different morph combinations, including high-end African fat tails and crested geckos. With over 17 years of experience in herpetoculture, Keith Kiggins brings you quality, integrity, and value. Check out GiantLeopardGecko.com on the web and on Facebook. Supreme Gecko is a great source for crested geckos, day geckos, and other species, including micro geckos. Wally Kern is a top-notch breeder and gecko enthusiast. Visit SupremeGecko.com for his available animals and supplies. ABDragons.com is your source for the highest quality dubia roaches. 
Whether you're starting a colony of your own or just need feeders for your insect-eating herps, abdragons.com can't be beat in quality or price. They are also a huge distributor of FlexWatt reptile heat tape and have very competitive pricing. Check out abdragons.com online and on Facebook. That's right, folks. And don't forget, with abdragons.com, we have a standard 5% off discount for Gecko Nation radio listeners. Use the word GECKO, all in caps, at checkout. You're going to get 5% off your order. Also, take advantage of leopard gecko, giantleopardgecko.com. Only a few days left uh, till the end of September, 20% off. Okay, Use the code GNR2014 for that code. All right, we're going to jump back into our interview with Vin Russo and uh, my co-host, Tim. Uh, Tim, take it away. Vin, uh, why don't you talk uh, about how you got started in the Long Island Herp Society and uh, how that came about and how you came to serve as president of the Long Island Herp Society. Well, you know, the the Herp Society, it's, it's kind of strange. When I was a kid, uh, there was there was a Herp Society called the New York Herpetological Society, and they met um, in New York City. And that society is the oldest herpetological society in the, in the United States. It was started in the that. 50s. Yeah, it was started in the 50s, and it was a bunch of kids that hung out at the the herp house at the Bronx Zoo. And um, one of the one of the keepers there started the Herp Society um, along with a couple of famous a couple of famous herpetologists. I think one of them was um, was maybe Carl Caulfield and a few other guys. But anyway, um, there's a cool picture out there. Uh, one of the one of the guys in the Herp Society showed it to me way back of a bunch of kids. <clears throat> like in leather jackets and slick back hair from the 50s standing in front of the Herp House at the Bronx Zoo, and they were like the first members. But anyway, when I was a kid, I would go to these meetings, so I knew about that history of the Herp Society, and I knew that was the first Herp Society ever. And um, later on, there was a lot of political maneuvering going on in the New York Herp Society, and I had I had become a member, and then I became a board member of that society. And when all that political maneuvering went on, um, I remember just getting out like, wow, I don't, I don't have time for this. I, I don't even live in New York City, and I'm going to go have meetings there and have people yell at me because they want their friend to be president. <laughs> you know, it was like I, I couldn't believe the politics involved. So, so anyway, I, I got out, and my brother and I at the time had a reptile shop. I don't want to, I don't want to make it a long story, so I try to shorten it as much as I can. We had a reptile shop, and it was about the, the mid '80s, and there was a Long Island Herp Society. And I remember going to one or two meetings when I was a kid, and my mother dropped me off. It was at Takapusha Museum in um, Massapequa. And it was a bunch of bikers. It was a bunch of guys, you know, with motorcycles. And they would meet at the Takapusha Museum and talk about rattlesnakes and (laughs) stuff like that. So my mother was like, I walked out of there one day, and she's like, what's going on in there? I'm like, oh, it's the Herb Society. It's really a bunch of cool guys. And they were. So, um, but needless to say, that society didn't last for some reason. I don't know why I was a kid at the time. So in the 80s, my brother and I had had, had our uh, reptile shop. A guy named Steve Wankselbaum, um, who owned a bookstore and a reptile shop, who was also one of the founders of the original Long Island Herpetological Society, came to my brother and I and was asking us, you know, what happened with the New York Herp Society? And we told him, oh, we left. There was just too much turmoil going on. And he said to me, he said, um, 
You know, I've got all the books on the Long Island Herb Society. I'll give them to you, and you guys can restart up the society and call it your own, call it that name and everything if you want to do it. He's like, you already got the infrastructure of board members. Just start it up. So my brother and, uh, and myself and Dr. Robert Price, who is the herpetologist that we described Longa Carter with, restarted the Long Island Herb Society in 19, I think it was 1988 or 89, probably 88. Maybe even 87. I don't know. It's a long time ago. And um, we took the society from just a few a few kids to probably at one point, I would say, 250, 300 members. And we had our first um, herp uh, show, which was like a dog show, but a herp show. And News 12 showed up, and uh, we had it at the Copeg Library, and hundreds of people were there. They had a, the fire marshal had to come and and you know, tell people, uh, you know, every every 10 people to get out, only 10 people can go in, and it was great. It was the heyday of the of the reptile world, and um, that's, that's how it all started, and from there, we, we got a lot of good board members. Um, Rich Hume, I met in the early 90s. He was a, a corn snake guy, still is a corn snake guy, one of my best friends, and he became the, uh, the um, he manages the money, what would you call that one? Treasurer. He's the treasurer, exactly. And he's been the treasurer ever, ever since. Um, I wasn't president right away. My brother was president um, in the beginning, and Dr. Robert Price was president in the beginning. I became president, um, I don't even remember what year, but maybe about maybe eight or ten years ago. And um, I've been president ever since. So um, it's a great society. We've got a really good core group of members. We have monthly meetings. Um, back in 2003, when um, New York decided to pass a bill that you couldn't keep boas and pythons in New York, um, I went to Albany as Long Island Herb Society, as president of the Long Island Herb Society, and spoke to a senator directly. And um, luckily enough, the senator was willing to sit and listen, and we um, we had the the um, the bill amended. Uh, to not include all boas and pythons, just the the giant uh, species. So the Herb Society has gotten me politically con- politically involved, I should say, which I never really wanted to do. Um, and now that's grown into other things on national levels. And so the Long Island Herb Society is very much involved whenever things happen. I'm also a, a personally a board member of PJAC. Um, Pet Industry Joint Advisory Council, where we meet once a month and talk about legislation that's being brought in, in, in front of uh, Congress and the Senate. Um, so it, it's a constant, it's a constant uphill battle. It's constantly educating people. It's constantly getting people to understand that reptiles aren't uh, the devil. They really make great pets. And thank God, there's companies like Petco and PetSmart that are selling reptiles and doing very well with reptiles and brought them into the mainstream. So that's that was my goal when I started the Herb, the Herb Society in the 80s. And, you know, I think we got to that point, but it's still we've still got a long road ahead. Road ahead. We actually uh, had Mike Lehman of the Gourmet Rodin on uh, last weekend. And uh, so, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about the same things. I think it's interesting, you know, a lot of children from – older generations uh, were introduced to reptiles in their backyard or in the woods near their house and out herping, catching whatever they could. And now a lot of people are introduced to reptiles 
by going to those big box stores and, you know, checking out the reptile section and, and that's where their curiosity gets sparked nowadays. So it's right. almost, you know, a completely different route to the same hobby that, you know, that we all got into. Um, for anybody that's interested, the website for the Long Island Herb Society is lahs.org. And uh, they have monthly meetings. They have great speakers. Um, if anybody's interested, go ahead and uh, and check out some of their meetings and their website. Um, do you, Vin? Do you currently have uh, any of the future speakers uh, posted up? Um, you know what it is. In September is when we we take the summer off, um, July and August. So September, our first meeting was uh, two weeks ago, and um, we had like a bring your own meeting where everybody brings their their latest and greatest um, wares of what they produce this year. So we kick off the year with that. And now we'll have a board meeting, and we'll we'll get all the speakers ready for for the year. So we just we're just doing that right now. But all the dates are up on our website on lihs.org. So we're working on bringing in, um, you know, a few a few big name speakers we bring in every year, and um, usually we we have a, a really good set of meetings. So it's not something to be missed. And we have a lot of good. We have a we have the the show which we're doing again this year. Um, just a smaller scale. We used to do it on a much larger scale, but it became too expensive for the society. We weren't making the money back, so we stopped doing the large-scale show. But we still have this, the show with ribbons, so kids get a, a like a big blue ribbon saying best in show or first or second place. So that's that's the, one of the great things about uh, that with kids because we, we really encourage kids in our society. There's a lot of members you know, there's a lot of members and board members now in the society that I knew when I was a kid who come there with their kids. So um, it, if you just go on the website, you'll see everything there. That um, the, the dates will be posted, but the speakers will be updated as as we get them, which will probably be done in the next couple of weeks. Hey, Ben, what does it take uh, to, to start one up? Say, excuse me, Tim. What, what, what does it, what take, it take to, to start up our... To, yeah, to start up well, like I said, we were lucky enough that the, that we, you know, got in touch with this Steve Wanksbaum who had already had a society that was up and running. All we had to do okay. was take take their um, take their you know set of uh, rules and regulations and put them into work and just appoint appoint board of directors or board members and get you know I, it's so long ago that I can't remember exactly the process of how we did it. But I know I was very much involved in it, and um, it's not an easy thing to do. But it's not impossible, especially today with with um, with, with um, the internet and social media. It, it, you know, <clears throat> it's funny because there were a lot of societies at one time before social media. But it seems social media has done away with a lot of societies because I know of a few societies in Florida that fell to the wayside and a, a few other ones across the country. And the LIHS, luckily enough, has been strong enough to stay alive because we're one of the oldest, and we we just kept it going, and we didn't give up. Um, when we didn't have a lot of money, we would have an auction. When, when we were running out of funds, we'd have our show and, you know, make some money from that. So we just kept it going. And there's a really good core group of, of board members that have been around for 20 years on the board, and, and um, every year we add new guys in. You know, this year we added in um, 
a couple of new members, and they'll hopefully be there another 20 years. So we're 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 going to keep it going. But it wasn't easy to start, but it wasn't difficult either. Either it can be done. It's not impossible. If I decided For, to start one, would would uh would you be able to possibly help me with some of the information, like the rules and stuff, and um, you know, some of the sure. things that sure. I would, I would need just to do. Give you, I would just give you a copy of our bylaws, and you can literally plagiarize them and copy it, and just make up your own, you know, your own society name. And you know, what we had to do is, luckily, we got Rich Hume as our treasurer because he works for Farmingdale University, and we get the university um, charges us minimal amounts of money for a meeting place, but also through his knowledge of um, accounting. Um, we are a, a registered not-for-profit organization with the with um, the IRS, so there's stuff like that you need to know, and you you know we, we probably could help you out with that, not not totally extensively, but we could steer you in the right direction, get you going. Okay, yeah, if I decide to do it, I'll I'll uh, I'll contact you. Thanks. For anybody that that's interested, uh, actually one of the speakers we've been trying to rope into going to the LIHS to give a talk at the monthly meetings is Matt Baronic of Sasselback Reptiles. So uh, when we get that scheduled, I'll make sure to uh, make an announcement on Gecko Nation Radio. So any anybody that's, you know, somewhat close that wants to uh, make the trip and, and check out one of the meetings, uh, that would probably be a, a good one for a lot of our listeners. Um, Vin, I, I actually don't see the um, the the show scheduled. Do you guys actually have a date for that yet? No, not yet. We won't okay. we won't have that until probably probably almost the winter. Okay. For the show um, show. That's usually in the spring. Okay. Uh would you like to talk about um the you know, there was a lot of talk in the in the industry lately about the controversial hiring of, of Ed Sayers with PJAC. Are there any comments you'd like to make about that? Well, you know, as you know, I'm on I'm on a board with a bunch of guys uh, from PJAC that have our own little uh, group of people that's affiliated with PJAC. We meet once a month, and Ed Sayers is, was in on the last phone call, and so was Mike Lehman. Um, he's he's on the same board of people, and um, we all came to the conclusion that um, you know this is it's it's going to go two ways. All right, now. This this guy Ed Sayers could be a benefit or he could be a detriment. We don't know yet. I don't know yet. I've I haven't expressed this to any of the other board members, um, but we all pretty much you know feel the same way. Like, well, what is this guy going to do? Is 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 he there for a job? And he's willing to to stick his neck out and help the pet industry get to past a certain hurdle, or is it going to be know thy enemy because he's sleeping with us, you know? So I, I don't know what's going to happen yet. I really don't. I'm, and I'm not that big of a big shot in PJAC to, to know. So I'm just a board member of a little board they put together for for helping out with some 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 congressional affairs and stuff like that. So it's hard to say. <clears throat> it's really hard to put your finger on it. He seems like a nice guy. He seems like his his heart is in the right place. Seems like he wants to help the pet industry. Uh, my hopes are that he gets the pet industry to the point where we're no longer looked upon as the enemy. Do you know what I mean by that? 
um, mm-hmm. and no longer looked upon as, you know, these bunch of, you know, dirt bags with reptiles. Because as you know, there's a lot of clean cut guys like me and Tim. <laughs> you know, then me. Yeah, the, the majority, you know what it is. In the past, in the 60s and 70s, people had reptiles with, you know, like these freakish people. And I remember because I was one of them. But, I mean, yeah. it became a business. It became a passion. And it became something that I was into. And the same thing happened with everybody else, you know. Yeah, yeah so you what? had to cut your hair. <laughs> yeah, I, right. I had to cut my hair at one point and become, we, a, you know, a, a, a credit to society. But you know, We had the same conversation with Mike last last Sunday. Right. It, it's it's like it's like we we're bringing the the you know and again and, and I'm sure Mike brought up the fact that you know having bigger larger companies like Petco and PetSmart and Petland involved in the reptile industry is great because you know the normal everyday guy is walking into a pet store with his kids and his kids saying, "Wow, dad, I really want to get that leopard gecko." And that's how that's already happened. That's not happening right now. That's already happened. The industry has already mm-hmm. gone to that point. It's not like this is new. And I'm I'm hoping that Ed Sayers can bring this to the next level and show all these other, you know, organizations that he's been affiliated with at one point, especially the the SPCA, that we're not public enemy number one. We're passionate about keeping reptiles, just like some people are passionate about keeping dogs. Some people are passionate about keeping birds. It's all the same thing, you know. So now yeah. that pets are in the mainstream and they're, you know, they're considered shoulder pets and they're considered, I think they should be considered, um, you know, captive born and bred wild stock, um, you know, and that's it. These things that are born in captivity and, and multiple generations, look at leopard geckos. They've been in captivity. Ron, Ron's got leopard geckos that are over 20 years old, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's getting close to 40 generations. Yeah, 40 generations. Captive. I've got conjure pythons where their their ancestors go back to Dr. Van Mirop, who brought snakes from Indonesia in 1976. So it's just they're here. They're they're captive bred and born in multiple multiple generations. So we'll see what happens with Ed Sayers. I I I'm hoping for the best. There's nothing more I can do. I mean, the guy's there. So yeah. it's great, Vin. We we really like. Um, you know what you what you've brought to the show tonight. We we like to document some of this history that uh, we feel almost gets lost sometimes. Some of these stories are so great. You know the way the the Long Island Herb Society started. Um, you know the way some of your your boas came into captivity. Um, are, are there any other uh, species in particular that that has a cool story like that of of how it came into your breeding stock? Well, the the long tail boas, the long jacata, um, came into the country back in the late '80s, um, and I remember um, the co-author to um, Dr. Richard Ross's book, um, Jerry Mozak. He was a he was a, a police officer, and he worked in in New York City. And we met my brother and I met him because he would come into our pet shop. And I remember him telling us about a shipment of boas that came in from Peru, and the paperwork was all messed up. So all those snakes are going to be going to the Staten Island Zoo and stuff like that. So, And he said to me, you've got to see these snakes. They're really neat looking. They're jet black. So I knew a guy who worked at the Staten Island Zoo, and I said, is there any way I can get any of these snakes? He's like, sure, I'll, I'll sell you some. So I ended up buying a bunch of them. 
And um, that's how the Lawn Jakarta got here. And I don't think they ever came into the country again. Maybe one other time they came in um, through Tom Crutchfield, but that was in the early 90s. And um, they may have came in through through um, Ecuador because Tumbes, Peru, is right on the border of Ecuador, and it's a disputed place, meaning there's a border dispute, or at least there was back then, between Ecuador and Peru. So there was a lot of a lot of controversy as to how those snakes got out of there, and I guess that was the reason why when they came into the United States there was problems with the paperwork. But what I'm getting at is those snakes came into the country, maybe a dozen of them, and I ended up with the first six or seven of them. The rest of them were at the Staten Island Zoo. So that was a cool story on how those came in. So you've been able to create a colony since then, I gather. Oh, yeah, I have I have a large group of them now. I'm going to call back in again through another phone because I think this... I think this one's going to die, too, so I'm going to call in. Can <laughs> you believe it? Yeah, sure, go ahead. <laughs> but I'll stay on uh, while I call in with the other one. I want to hear what it sounds like. we got to get you some batteries <laughs> for uh, the next time we have you on, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, a, this is definitely a good show, though. I'm, I'm really... You know, I, I've often thought about starting my own herd society because when I was a teenager, I was uh, president of my uh, local 4-H club, and that was pretty much a herb society. Uh, we had the 4-H Herpetology Club, which was a lot of fun. And, you know, to, but I guess, you know, I don't know if, it, if people are going to be uh, wanting to leave the house and actually meet somewhere when they can just start conversing in a Facebook group. I mean, I, is that what's happened today? People don't even want to take a ride and meet up with others? I mean, I don't know. What do you think, Tim? Is that what's going on? I think ideally what would be really awesome is that if the Long Island Herb Society could uh, do like a video cast of their monthly meetings and so people that, you know, live a few hours away or more, even across the world, could be a part of it, you know, when they do it. And then even if they could um, record it and have a, a video library on their website where, you know, people pay yeah, a, a small membership fee fee to have access to all of the you know to the archive of of meetings. I think that would be mm-hmm. something really cool. And um, you know, as Vin said, and I, I witnessed it too. That um, I was a part of a couple of really cool herp societies that you know with with the internet. I would say more than anything, kind of um, was was their downfall. You know. And I think if they if they could use it as a tool, it would just make them bigger and better. Yes, I, I think we got him back. Wait, wait, is he uh, 516 area code, Tim? Yes. Yes? Okay. Okay. You got me? Ben, is this you? Yeah, yeah okay, can you cool. hear me? All right. Yep, yeah, um, Tim, Tim, we're going to put you in charge of that, all right, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> we, we already did it, believe it or not. We, we did it... Um, we did a, a live, um, a live uh, FaceTime um, with one of our speakers. Um, um, Eric Callender came in and did a, a live FaceTime with Madagascar. So we had a meeting on Madagascar because he's gone there a few times, and we were on FaceTime with with a bunch of people from Madagascar. So we, we've done something similar to that. I'm not too tech savvy. We'll have to get uh, Steve Barker, our our news anchor. And uh, 
AV guy to uh, to be a part of that one, Ben. Well, you're in charge of it, man. I'm going <laughs> to nominate you. <laughs> it can be done. Actually, I, the reason why I bring it up is because it's what I want. Because I it's it's a, it's tough for me to make it to the meeting. <laughs> yeah, it's all just for you. <laughs> I'll have uh I'll have you I'll send you like an old iPhone and you could just uh hook it up to the Wi Fi and leave it in the back of the room and I'll I'll be happy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, then, Vin, um, um hold on one second, Tim. Uh, Vin, you were saying earlier that you uh you were breeding blue tongues, is that is that true? Yeah, I do blue tongues too. Okay. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that because uh I think blue tongues are starting to gain in popularity again. I've read Blue Tongues for 20 years now, and uh, it seems like the last, I don't know, five, six years, they've kind of, I don't know, disappeared a little bit. But uh, it seems like people are starting to get back into them. Uh, what can you tell us about yeah. what you're working with? Well, I'm doing the uh, Northern Blue Tongues. I've got the Maruki Blue Tongues. I've got the um, Tannenbar Blue Tongues. I've got um, Key Island Blue Tongues. I like the island stuff. The tannin bars and the key islands are pretty neat. Um, and that's about it with them. But um, the northerns I do every year, and um, they, they're they're really easy to breed. The tannin bars seem pretty easy to breed, too. They have babies for me every year, too. Now, I've got some marukis. They'll be big enough probably this coming up, uh, this coming spring. They'll be big enough. Um, but, yeah, they're cool. They're cool creatures, and uh, I think they're really underrated. Um, but you're right, they're starting, for some reason, they're starting to gain popularity, I think, um, simply because, you know, so many people were getting into more ball pythons and stuff and spending all their money. And now, you know, people are like, wow, what about all these other cool things? So, yeah, and blue tongues are pretty neat. And they're not hard to breed, and they eat cat food. They'll eat frozen, well, defrosted frozen vegetables. Um, they're anything. so easy to feed. Yeah, I mean, you can feed them table scraps if you wanted to, but... They're, they're the simplest things to take care of. You don't have to go buy crickets and roaches and mice. Um, they're just great pets, and they're not they're not that mean either. I mean, the the island stuff like the Key Island snakes, they're they're they were wild caught, so um, they're not that friendly. But I'm sure in the second and third generation they'll be fine. Just like the tannin bars, the original tannin bars that came to the country were nuts. I mean, these little tiny skinks would try to rip your head off. But now the second and third generation ones I have are, they're they're much calmer than their their original wild caught grandparents, that's for sure. It's amazing yeah. with uh totally different groups of animals you hear the same story of uh how only, you know, a few generations out of the wild animals they tame down or look different. Um it's amazing, you know, you hear it about, you know, foxes and oh, all yeah. types of different yeah, reptiles. Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, snakes snakes should be classified as domesticated animals. I mean, and that that's another goal um, of mine for for the future to get these animals classified as domesticated because they don't look like any anything like take a take a raptor leopard gecko. Does that look anything like a wild caught leopard gecko? I mean, it's it's so far removed from a wild caught leopard gecko. Same with you know, uh, with my stuff, like a red dragon boa, an albino blood boa, it looks nothing like a, a normal boa from Central America. So through through domestication and multiple generations in captivity, we're changing these animals. And not only are we changing their appearance, 
we're changing their demeanor. We're we're selectively breeding for friendlier animals. I mean, do you really think the first uh, captive bred rabbits were real friendly in the Easter Bunny? No, they will probably bite you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they've got all different types of uh, special breeds now with rabbits, which are really cool, like the velveteens and the you know the crazy wire hairs or whatever they call them. I I don't know. I think all those are very interesting. I'm actually a big fan of pigeons. Either you guys like like pigeon morphs. You ever see these those crazy birds? Yeah, there's a there's a tumbler. It's a bird that just falls out of the sky and tumbles. It's a recessive gene. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that people. Now that gene obviously wouldn't help that that pigeon in the wild, but people <laughs> did it because they thought it was cool. So now they got a pigeon that tumbles out of the sky. I mean, <clears throat> the same thing with everything else we're doing. Look at cows. A cow looks nothing like a water buffalo from Africa, and that's where they came from. So. The, the snakes yeah. are the same are, are no different and and it's, again it's my hopes that this lift of domesticated animals is, which which is put out um by the federal government and one day hopefully we'll have it would be nice or 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 at least leopard geckos yeah definitely Finn, do you want to talk about uh any of the other species that you work with um I'm sure uh, you probably produced some crazy-looking uh, ball pythons this year. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I do a lot of ball pythons, too, just, you know, because I really like them. And, and, and I'm glad that that I can, you know, say that I've had the ball pythons before during all this ball python craze. So it wasn't like I got into ball pythons, because I hear a lot of guys, you know, say, oh, I'm getting into ball pythons now. It's like, oh, really? Uh, that's nice. Um, but I, I got into ball pythons a long time ago, and I got into them because I really liked them. And, and luckily, I liked them because I wouldn't have them if I if I didn't like them. So um, <clears throat> I'm doing. I've obviously got my own line of leucistic, which was the first line that came out. They were born serendipitously in my collection back in 2001. So, and in all the the hats are a little different. It, I think. Greg Graziani coined the name Russo hats. I never called them Russos. I called them lemon balls. And the leucistics I called white diamonds. But everybody calls the hats um, het Russos, and they're called the leucistic Russos. So, <laughs> you know, I'm disclosing now. I, I don't have an ego. I did not do that. That was somebody else. <laughs> I didn't call them Russo snakes, you know. Um, but that, that fortunately for me that, that I had gotten the uh, – popped up that leucistic from a wild-caught snake that was really yellow-looking that I thought was some kind of um, pastel, um, those those cool-looking hats make cool stuff, too. You know, you know I made a, a pied het leucistic, which, which I call the pinto pied. Um, I've mixed it into all kinds of other things. Um, I also am producing some ultramels. That, that's a whole other long story. Um, ultramels and ultramel caramels that I call camarillos. So um, I've got the things that I like. I, I produce the things I like. I love albinos. I love pipes. I love my leucistics, um, and I try to mix them into a bunch of things. The the caramels, the ultramels, those I've mixed into a few things. I can ultramel pin, um, an ultramel pastel. Um, I'm trying to make an ultramel pie next. So, um, oh, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, I'm trying to stay one step ahead, but I'm also making a lot of the things I like because they do sell. 
people love leucistics, they love albinos, um, they love pies, all that stuff are, are nice things to have that sell. Because all the other oddball things that I make, nobody really cares about. I end up keeping most of those anyway. So, it, you know, <laughs> it gets gotten to the point now where if you're just getting into ball pythons, I feel bad for you because there's hundreds and hundreds of varieties now. And considering when I look back to even the late 80s, I saw shipments of thousands of ball pythons come out of the wild, and I never saw anything different than a normal ball come out of Africa. So I don't know where all these things came from and how they popped up so quick, but it's just it's just it's amazing to me. And I, I've kept up with it over the years. And for people to get into it now, they're just flabbergasted. They're like, "What? What is this?" You know, when they see a bumblebee. You know, so I don't care. I don't care what anybody says. These are these morphs are not all coming out of the wild. I think no, no, somebody think, them... tinkering around with temperatures and eggs and. Something's going on. Well, you know, there are there are a bunch that did come out like come out of the wild. For example, the first pies came out of the wild. The first albinos came out of the wild. The first, you know, key genes came out of the wild, and then we started mixing and matching. But you know, ghost, cinnamon, pinstripe, that all came out of the wild. A bunch of them did. And the banana, I remember the first banana coming out of the wild. Kevin McCurley had it and showed me a picture of it. I thought it, it had a bunch of ticks on it, and so did he. <laughs> from when he saw the first picture of it. And then when he got it, I saw it in real life, and I'm like, wow, that was only ticks. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so they, they, it, it amazes me that these pink and white and yellow snakes could live in the wild. It just goes to show you how secretive these snakes are. They probably live in a termite mound their whole life and just wait for a rat to run by. So, But it, it, it just amazes me that all these things have popped up in the last 20 years, and, and now it's just... The the possibilities are endless now. It's there's no way you can make every combination now. It's impossible. Yeah. Vin, if yeah, if you it. if you were looking through shipments for uh, for something different, I think you were looking through shipments that were already picked through a, a couple times before you got there. <laughs> no, you mean way back <laughs> when? No, there was no such yeah. thing as picking through shipments back then. I remember looking at ten thousand ball pythons that came out of Africa, and probably in 1987. And I swear to you, I didn't see anything different. The most different thing I saw was a, a snake that I have to this day, and I call it the pumpkin ball. And it was just really orange, and it makes orange snakes. That's it. That's the only I, uh, thing I ever saw. I remember going through maybe a couple thousand at the Gourmet Road, and I, I definitely saw, you know, like um, maybe they'd be called pastels today or, um, you know, definitely ones that had a lot more yellow than than others. And, yeah, like you said, some with a lot of orange on their sides and stuff. Well, you know, we didn't know back then either. We didn't know how to recognize a yellow belly. We didn't know how to recognize a specter. We didn't know how to recognize a mystic. All these snakes look pretty normal, you know? So that that was one thing that we were missing back then, to, to understand that these little tiny hidden hidden genes that are popping up do do something. You know, so it it took a lot of guys, a lot of work to figure that out. I mean, Amir, um, he 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 figured out that whole yellow belly thing, and then the specter thing by breeding a yellow belly to a specter, and he thought a specter was a yellow belly. I mean, to me, that's just that's just amazing that all that stuff popped up. And then he made the pumas, and then the sumas. It's just to me, it's it's again, if you're just getting into this and you need to 
you know, even Google all those things I just said, your head would spin. <laughs> we're uh, <laughs> we're Vin. Next week we're gonna have uh, Dr. Ben Morell on, who's a geneticist. So uh, we'll have uh, we'll have a good introductory class for everybody. Right. <laughs> yeah. They'll need it. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you talk a little bit about your book and uh, what people could expect if they if they pick up a copy? Well, in Europe, it's called the Boa Bible. Now, I didn't name it that. <laughs> now, that, there's a lot of information in that book. Um, <clears throat> I remember one time being at a reptile show, and some kid w- was looking at the book, and I, and he said to his mother, hey, Mom, I, I want to buy this book. And she saw that it was $55. It's like, oh, we'll just get that information on the Internet. And I said to her, unless somebody tapped the USB port into my head, you're not going to get that information on the Internet. None of it's on the internet. On the internet, it's it's all my knowledge from the last thirty years. So it's all there. There's chapters on breeding. There's chapters on feeding season, non-feeding seasons. Chapters on care. Chapters on every single subspecies of boa. All nine subspecies that are recognized today, and who knows how many more there will be in the future. Um, there's chapters on all the color morph and pattern anomalies that are out there. There's chapters on on every geographic range of boas. I go I start in South America from Argentina and work work all the way up into Mexico showing snakes from every single country and what they look like in every country. So uh, it, it it it's a compiled history of what I've been working on for 30 years and there's pictures in that book that are about 30 years old. So um not all the pictures I took right before I wrote the book. A bunch of them I took a long time ago in anticipation of compiling information to to put somewhere for somebody to understand. So it, I, I would say it's probably my life's work all put together into a book, and and I I won't do it again. It took way too much time, that's for sure. <laughs> and you and you traveled to to South America and, and Central oh, yeah. America. I've been, I've been to all these places exactly. I photographed snakes in the wild. I've been to the wild where they come from. I've been to Ecuador, Peru. I've been to all of the Central American countries. Um, I've been there, and I've I've seen the snakes. So um, one of my next trips will be to all the islands uh, in Belize to see these snakes. So that's going to be another another big trip. I just wrote an article about island boas for um, the new um, magazine Herp Nation. Scott Waters asked me to write an article last uh, August when I saw him in Daytona. So that will be out in the next. Herp Nation edition, and it's about all of the um, island-type boa constrictors. Um, now, it's nothing new that I wrote a, an article about island boas. Louis Forrest did it for um, Reptiles Magazine back in the 90s, um, and I, I obviously did not plagiarize him in any way, but I just did, I, I would say, in my opinion, a second edition of that meaning there's a lot of other snakes that are discovered now that, that nobody knew about back then. So um, I did an article on those. There's snakes from um, West Snake Key, snakes from Lagoon Key, all off the coast of Belize, obviously the Crawl Key, the Kaycocker, um, and a few others I mentioned in this article. And I also discussed the other island type boas like Corn Island, Hog Island, and Pearl Island. Um, but the emphasis is on the... the the island boas off of Belize and how different they are from the mainland snakes. 
So um, that'll be something to look for. Um, the book covers most of that stuff. It doesn't cover all the new island types that have been coming out. I've been collaborating with a Ph.D. from Dickinson's University named Dr. Scott Boback. He's done a lot of research on island boas from Belize. So um, he and I have been working together on an article, a scientific uh, journal art- article on boas. So it's like a never-ending never ending thing for me. And when you were traveling, uh would you would you be out there in in the boat's habitat with a temp gun and taking notes? Did you come back from your trip and and change anything in the way you you keep your boas in captivity? Oh yeah, I I traveled with thermometers, hygrometers and um got an idea of what was going on. The one thing I changed the most was temperature. I I definitely kept boas way too warm. Um, prior to those trips, um, I remember being up in the cloud forest in Costa Rica, and it was about 60 degrees one morning, and I'm like, wow, it is cold up here. And then the sun would come out on the south side of the mountain, and you'd see a boa basking on top of a, a rotten log, you know. So the the temperatures that I was keeping snakes at, now I didn't cool them down at 60 or, or high 50s because I knew it do some damage because I can't replicate the sun in, indoors. Um, so, but I did realize that they do get exposed to cooler temperatures in the wild at certain times of year. And the times of year that they are exposed to those cooler temperatures, you obviously don't feed them much or anything at all. And I also noticed that at other times of year when it's really, really hot and the water levels are high, the floods come that there's an overabundance of food. There's a lot of food, and those snakes gorge themselves. So the hognose snake taught me about that, because here on here in New York, hog, hog, um, hognose snakes gorge themselves on toads for about 8 to 12 weeks out of the summer, and then they're done for the whole year. Now, boa constrictors do a similar thing. So do pythons in Africa. When when the rains come and the, 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 the grass is green, the rodent populations flourish, and they start to eat a lot. And in South America, I noticed that when the rains came, the capybaras were proliferating and the birds and the ducks were proliferating and there was a lot of food for those, so they started eating. So I learned a lot from my travels, that's for sure. I spent a lot of time in the jungle, and it definitely helped me in breeding snakes. That's that's 100%. That's awesome. Uh, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of the listeners, I'm sure, are very jealous of... Uh of some of your travels. Any other uh, cool stories from from your travels down there? No. <laughs> <laughs> I spent, uh, I spent uh, a couple of weeks with a, a tribe of Indians called the Ashawa Indians in um, in Ecuador, which was a lot of fun. They, uh, they had their own little uh, eco-lodge that they had built themselves. Um, the cool thing about it was, and I mentioned it in my book, um, they they were um, convinced at one time in their history by by um, big oil companies to come into their land and, and drill, and these 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 small tribes who were trying to modernize themselves maybe needed some outboard motors, some chainsaws, some things to make their lives easier. Um, fell for those traps, so to speak, and luckily learned because they're very smart people. They learned that by letting oil companies in to trash the forest and drill for oil, 
um, was not a good thing. But what they did learn is that ecotourism was helping them make just as much money, if not more. So uh, I, I spent a, a few weeks with a with a tribe of people that had their own ecotourism uh, tourism place set up. I learned about it in the back of National Geographic magazine. And I spent a, a, a couple weeks with these people, and I learned tremendous volumes of, of knowledge from them. And uh, they were very wise beyond their years, considering they, you know, People from our modern world would think that they were Neanderthal, but they were very much smarter than we than we would ever know. And they knew that treating Mother Nature with with respect and kindness was far greater than than you know the mighty dollar. So um, I, I I learned a lot from those people, and I learned a lot about the jungles, spending time with those people, and in the heart of the Amazon, which is the lungs of the earth. Hey, Vin, could you ever see yourself uh, leaving modern society and, like, retiring in the jungle? Because I could see myself doing something like that one day. I would love to just get away from all this sometimes. Nah, I'm sorry. I can't. <laughs> I love to care, but it's not it, – it, it, I'm too too used to the, the world I have today. So maybe one yeah. day, maybe in a different – you know, I, I do spend a lot of time in the mountains in New York State uh, the the Adirondacks and the Catskills. I could see myself sitting in a cabin on a lake fishing every day as a retired person uh, and living off the land that way, deer hunting and, you know, living off the land, eating what I could find, you know, like they do in Alaska. But as far as uh, the jungles in South America, there's way too many, there's way too many things that could kill you. <laughs> more, more than up here, yeah. that's for sure. I mean, I came across snakes that I've never seen before in my life, and one scientist that was with us was said to me, "Oh, you're the herpetologist guy. You want to you grab that snake?" And I said to him, "If I grab that snake and it bites me and it's venomous, are you carrying my 210 pound body three miles back to the back to the <laughs> lodge?" I said, "I doubt it. You'll just leave me here to rot." So just um, way too much we don't know about that about that part of the world, and um, I'd like to leave it that way. Those, yeah. those native Peruvians, Vin, what what was their view of the boas? Um, it was, you know, I, I spent a couple of days looking for boas, and it, was, it wasn't until I talked to um, an Ashawar um, Indian who was also a shaman about boas that I found them, and he found them instantly. They They are so in touch with their environment they knew exactly where to go and where to find things. And um, he was he was in Ecuador, but he brought me to Peru to find snakes in Peru, too. And um, I couldn't believe what I saw there. And then how simply and easily this guy found snakes. It was like, uh, he was like Father Nature, and he called them, and they just showed up. I mean, amazing. The same thing happened to me in Australia. I was in Australia for a couple of weeks, and I didn't find a thing. I met a guy who worked at a crocodile farm. And I told him, I'm an American, I'm into reptiles, I'd just love to see some in the wild. And he took me out one night and we saw everything. I mean, you name it, we saw it. We were in the northern part of Australia in Daintree, which is their rainforest. It's, in the, it's up, up near Cairns. And we saw um, scrub pythons, we saw spotted pythons, we saw um, carpet pythons, we saw everything all in one night. 
you got to know you got to go with the right people because you can you can spend weeks and weeks and weeks and not find the thing. Wow. Yeah, well I'd like to do I'd like to do a trip like that sometime. I think uh ideally I'd like to go to Australia, spend a few weeks down there. Um actually I think you need like a few months to really see everything in Australia. Yeah, but, you do. Uh, I, I spent I spend a month there. You need you need a lot of time. You need a lot of time because there's so much so much to see. Any <clears> any <throat> chance of uh any chance of getting any Centralian blue tongues? Thing? Oh yeah, I have a bunch in my back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're hard to find. If you find them, they're like super expensive. Um, I don't, I don't have any of that stuff. So I'd yeah. like to one day, but you know they're not as prolific as like northern blue tongues. Northern blue tongues could have twelve, fifteen, twenty babies, <clears throat> and they'll breed a mm. year or two old. So um, these Centralians, from what I'm gathering, a lot of guys are saying that they take a long time to mature, and then you still don't know if you have a male and a female. So. Mm-hmm. That's a shame, but you know, same with all the shingleback stuff. All the stuff that comes into the country are older animals um, that were caught in Australia, then brought into Europe, and then brought into the U.S. And you know, these these poor things lived in the in the southern hemisphere for 15 years of their life, and then you put them in the northern hemisphere, and they're like, "I'm supposed to be hibernating right now," and you're keeping them warm and feeding them in the middle of the summer, so. It's the same with a lot of those Indonesian skinks too. A lot of that stuff comes in the country, um, obviously legal legally, but um, they're they're in a different hemisphere, and you bring them here, and you're kind of switching them up, and they don't like it. So I'm sure that same thing happened with the first the first Australian geckos that came out of there. I mean, that must have been a tough time switching their their internal clocks. You know, people don't think of that yeah. part. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, well, you know, Vin, we're coming towards the end of our show, and uh, number one, I just want to say it's been a, just an awesome interview, and you have an open invitation to stop back on anytime you'd like. But uh, I'd like to give you this opportunity. Yeah, I'd like to give you the opportunity now to, uh, you know, discuss anything that you definitely want to, um, you know, mention any closing remarks, and also to definitely give out your information so people can find you. Well, you can get me at um, www.cuttingedgeherp.com. That's my website. Um, I've also got a new business page, uh, which is um, a Facebook business page, and Tim mentioned it earlier. That's facebook.com forward slash cuttingedgeherp. Um, That I update pretty much daily and just put a picture of something new and different that I produced. Um, I don't put everything on there that I produce because I just physically can't but I'll put something new and different on there at least at least every day. And I'd like to get as many people as I can to like that page simply because there'll be people that will receive the updates from me as I set my pictures on there. And if it's a guy like you looking for surnames, you'll see, oh, Vin had a litter of surnames. How cool are they? So um, I'm hoping that'll be an easier way for me to get out uh, to the masses and to people looking for these type of things, um, a way of selling them. Um, the website... It, to me, is becoming antiquated. So I think social media is the next wave of the future, and so I'm doing that. And also people ask, you know, Ben, why don't you like my page? And I say to them, I can't because I have a business page. It doesn't let me like anybody's page. So <laughs> I kind of don't get that part. I think it's 
it's for obvious reasons. I think because if a business page is able to like another page, they just like everybody, and they just inundate people's pages with likes from businesses. So um, that's that's another thing I'm working on. And um, other than that, this new article I'm, I'm putting out, um, it's got a, cu- a couple of, um, you know, there's a, there's a chapter in my article about um, the ecology of these snakes and how, we need to understand that we need to preserve their environment and not be so worried about um, legislation. Um, we need to be more concerned about saving the rainforest and these islands. Uh, there's one example I'll mention in my book, and um, I mean in my article about how there's an island um, that's for sale in the, in uh, in Belize, off the coast of Belize, and. It's well known that when these islands are sold, that they just extirpate everything from the island and just build some kind of resort on them or something. So, and if these snakes are as different from the mainland as as they are through DNA, then obviously there's something unique living in these places. So we need to preserve them. And uh, you know, in in my my eyes, the, the the only thing I'd like for 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 people to understand to be passed on to the next generation is Let's breed animals in captivity. Let's not take them out of the wild any longer. And if we do take them out of the wild, we take them out of the wild in very small numbers and they go into the hands of very trusted people and breeders that that have the ability to take care of them just to reproduce them and not not commercialize wild-caught animals anymore. It's not necessary. So that's all I have to say. I agree. I wouldn't be be upset if we... uh if we start started seeing that some of the expos captive bred animals only, uh, I would like to see that actually. Well, you know, the Daytona National Reptile Breeders Expo is supposed to be captive bred only, <clears throat> um, nice. but I'm sure you and I have seen something that it didn't look necessarily captive bred only. But you know, that's people mm-hmm. trying to squeeze something under the door. But yeah, it, it should be that way. It should definitely be that way. If you're going to be showing off your wares at a at a convention or a trade show, a reptile trade show, the animals should be captive bred and born. They shouldn't be wild caught. I mean, I don't see a reason why wild caught animals should be should be sold into the pet trade any longer. It's a double edged sword. The snakes get into the hands of novices. They can't take care of them and they die. And then the person, one of two things happens: they get very disgruntled and they never want to do it again, or they just keep buying wild caught animals and they just keep dying. So education is where it's at. People need to be educated on captive breeding, and and that's it. I mean, you don't go into the wild to to get your dog anymore. You don't go into the wild to get parrots anymore. That that ended in the 70s, wild-caught parrots. So why not reptiles? Yep, exactly. And, and Vin, why don't you mention uh, some of the shows that you'll be at in the coming months? Well, um... I don't do a lot of shows because I don't believe in, you know, traveling so much with animals because I think it is a little tough on them. It's more tough on me. <laughs> but but uh, uh, I, I I should have a representative of my company at um, Tinley Park this uh, this uh, October, which is in two weeks, I think, right? Um, and I'm always at the White Plains show in White Plains, New York. So that that show uh, I've got a good following at and I think that's about it as far as shows for me other than I'll do the National Reptile Breeders Expo down in Daytona 
And I only do that show simply because I've been doing it since 1990, which was the first year that Wayne had that show when it was in a Holiday Inn, or Howard Johnson, I think it was, in uh, in Orlando. So, um, you know, I was there 20-something years ago with all the, uh, all the old-timers, and now they call me an old-timer. <laughs> uh, for the record, you, you're calling yourself an old-timer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Vin, thank you so much for uh, coming on with us tonight and, and donating your time. As we said, we really appreciate you bringing uh, all this information uh, to our listeners. And, um, Absolutely. It's it's great to, to document some of this history because uh, we feel some of these awesome stories get lost um, if uh, if we don't get them out there in this venue. And um, you're you're a very easy guest to have on to to talk to, just uh, get you started in some cool stories. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. All right, All right cool. We'll have a good night. Have a good night. Bye, man. All right. All right, I'm going to go ahead and play the outro, and then uh, we'll come back with Tim and I's closing remarks. Hang tight, folks. Oh, real quick before I go, we have a uh, T-shirt giveaway uh, from from uh, Cutting Edge Herp. Anybody that could tell me what my favorite uh, boa type of boa constrictor is, you can either call in real quick at 646 646- Four seven eight five three three one, or you can put your answer in the chat room. Let me know what's Dave's favorite type of boa constrictor. If you guess it, first one to guess it wins the T-shirt. All right, check out this, and we'll be right back. Gecko Nation Radio is a David Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. The jazz music you heard tonight was generously donated and created by Jeremy Turgeon of J&D Reptiles. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for the great musical pieces. You can check out Jeremy at J&D Reptiles on YouTube and on Facebook. And a very special thank you to our news anchor, graphic designer, and audio tech, Steve Barker. All the graphics, audio sponsor plugs, and music overlays were assembled by Steve. Check out Steve on YouTube at BC Barker Creations. He has some terrific videos for the herp community with amazing geckos and snakes. Please support the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance and U.S. ARC. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to support both of these organizations. Please donate to U.S. ARC so that they have the funds needed to legally protect pet owners' rights nationwide. You can donate to the U.S. ARC Legal Defense Fund at www.usarc.org. If you would also like to learn about advocacy and how you can take action on a state and local level, please subscribe to the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance newsletter and blog at www.usherp.org. All right, we're going to take the the T-shirt contest to the Facebook page. Um, I'll do something during the week for that, folks. All right. Um, Tim, what do you think? What do you think of tonight's interview? It, it was a really good show. I hope uh, the listeners enjoyed it. And uh, it's definitely one that I'm going to have to go back and, and listen to again to really absorb uh, all the information that Vin provided us with. Right, absolutely. And uh, I, I don't know. I just like uh, 
I like mixing it up every once in a while. You know, we do a lot of gecko talk, of course. We love geckos, but, you know, this show is about all aspects of herpetoculture. So when we can mix it up like this, it's just uh, it's a lot of fun. But, uh, all right, well, you know, Tim, we're going to, we're going to have another good show planned for next week. So who do we got again next week? We have Dr. Ben Morrell. So if anyone has questions, uh, genetic questions, uh, be sure to email them to us. Uh, you guys know our information. And um, we'll we'll get those to to Dr. Morrell next weekend for uh, for all you guys. Excellent. All right, Tim, thanks for uh, joining me tonight, and uh, we'll see you again next week. All right, Dave, have a good night. You too, bud. All right, folks, uh, let me just mention our sponsors, and then I'm going to play a song to take us out for the night. Uh, Number one, Dale's Bearded Dragons uh, has been with us since the beginning, and they are the biggest reptile supply distributor at the Northeast Expo. So if you're going to Hamburg or uh, White Plains, all the way up to New Hampshire and down into Maryland, they are the place to go to get your supplies, whether it's exoterra, supplements, lighting, heating, bearded dragon stuff, of course, uh, anything you need, cages, tanks, they got them. And mention Gecko Nation Radio, and they're going to hook you up. Uh, abdragons.com is your source for dubia roaches, the best dubia that there are, all right, for the price. So make sure you use the code GECKO, all in caps, at checkout for 5% off your dubia roaches. Okay, that's at abdragons.com. Gecko Boa Reptiles uh, is with John Scarborough. John Scarborough is a breeder of really uh, special uh, fine lines of leopard geckos, okay, and some uh, obscure species of geckos as well. So check out Gecko Boa Reptiles. Uh, Mention Gecko Nation Radio, of course. Uh, Supreme Gecko with Wally Kern does a great job with day geckos, micro geckos, crestes, and he has supplies too for all of them. So definitely check out SupremeGecko.com. Another great breeder of leopard geckos and fat tails is Ohio Gecko, Fat Uncover. He's also the owner of GeckoForms.net. So make sure you check out Ohio Gecko for tangerines, snows, and his signature fat tail project, which is called the Starburst. So uh, those are really cool. Check them out. And if you're feeding uh, insect-eating reptiles and need a good source, well, actually the best source for your uh, mealworms and other insects, definitely check out rainbowmealworms.net, okay? That's where I get all my feeders from, uh, all my mealworms, rainbowmealworms.net. And you can check out Jillian uh, Spence on Facebook. She's a doll. She'll help you out if you have any questions. Uh, reptilesexpress.com is the place to use to get your FedEx labels to ship your animals anywhere in the country. Go to reptilesexpress.com, and if, you have, if you're new to shipping, uh, ask for Debbie, and she'll talk you through it and she'll help you uh, get it done. And there's nothing to be afraid of, folks. Uh, shipping animals is safe and easy, uh, and uh, easy to do. Uh, Ron Tremper is the probably the biggest contributor to leopard geckos, okay, for the last 30 or 40 years. Check out leopardgecko.com, okay, to see where morphs are made. And he's got some cool apps such as Leopard Gecko Pro, Leopard Gecko Care, and a few others. Uh, GiantLeopardGecko.com, Keith Kagans is uh, giving Gecko Nation radio listeners a 20% credit. Use the code GNR2014. It's only good for uh, the end of September. So hurry up. Check out his site, GiantLeopardGecko.com. Got some really great geckos. 
Uh, and of course, if you're feeding your feeder insects, make sure you use the best food available, which is MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Okay. And last but not least, our newest sponsor, Daryl Burton and Cade Burton from Longhorn Geckos, specializing in uh, high-quality leopard gecko morphs, such as super tangelos, pastel raptors, white and yellows, and some really cool wild types, such as Angra Manu and uh, maybe even some Fuscus coming down the line. So check them out on Facebook at Longhorn Geckos, and soon they're going to have a website. And the folks, we have one more uh, we have a sponsorship opportunity opening up, so if you are a business that would like to get some exposure to thousands of listeners online, contact me at geckonationradio at gmail.com, and we can talk about bringing you on as an advertiser and sponsor. All right, folks, and uh, join us next week, and here's a cool song to take us out. Until next time. Sometimes I lay under the moon I thank God I'm breathing And I pray don't take me soon Cause I am here for a reason Sometimes in my tears I drown but I never let it get me down So when negativity's around I know Drenched, baby. 